Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm Keith Pankow, and I have the amazing privilege to be here with Mike Oliver. He is the progressive principal of Mountain View High School in Mesa, Arizona. He is passionate about teaching and learning and has taken a stand with innovation in public education. Mike was the founding principal of Zaharis Elementary School and recognized as one of the 25 most innovative, inspiring, and coolest schools in America, and the Exemplary School for Literacy Development in the U.S. by Scholastic. Mike has a doctorate degree in leadership and innovation from Arizona State University, and has committed to working alongside the Mountain View staff and community in reimagining what a school can be. He has boldly declared that Mountain View will become the premier high school in all of America, and welcomes the accountability associated with such a great expectation. Mike's priority is his faith and his family. He is happily married to his wife, Trish, and they have four children and two grandchildren. Mike is passionate about running, having run over 30 marathons and several ultra marathons, including a 100-mile race. Well, welcome, Mike. So glad to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Keith. I'm excited to be here. What a wonderful definition of your school and such a vision to have I love that it's innovative, inspiring, and coolest schools in America. What a great way to define your school. And as we are getting to know each other a little bit, I talked a little bit about my education, and I would have never described one of my schools as the coolest. So I love to hear that and also excited to hear that your students also think that. And I saw some of the interviews on the news channel, which I'll post a link in the show notes. The students also seem to share that description as well. And how do you get the students to feel such a way about your school? Well, first I might add, the students weren't terribly excited about the most innovative and inspiring school in America, but the coolest school in America certainly uh, resonated with them. They love that title. But that's a great question. Really what I think you're asking, Keith, is how do you get an entire community, students, teachers, support staff, parents, community partners, and business leaders in the community, how do you get an entire community excited about a place called school? And boy, I'm so passionate about sharing this. You might regret that you asked me to come on here because it's a 40-minute program and I can go on for about 19 days talking about it. But first, there's two approaches to developing anything in life, whether it's a school, a business organization, any culture. You can strive to do the same old thing and try to do it better, or you can do better things. And well over two decades ago, I decided that trying to do the same old thing better, I would leave to everybody else and that I would dedicate the rest of my journey on doing better things. And what better things look like might be what you're asking. One, the model in public education. You know, everybody knows something about public education because everybody's been through it. And I hear a lot of people say that public education is broken today. And I couldn't disagree with them more, Keith, and here's why. It's not that it's broken. It was just designed a very long time ago. Specifically, are you ready for this? Specifically, back in the 1800s during the Industrial Revolution, when the aim of K-12 public education was to put kids in assembly lines after they graduated from high school in the factories where 95% of the jobs were back then. So sadly enough, Keith, the model that we have in public education today is that same model. And it hasn't been disrupted in well over 100 years. So it's not that it's broken. 
It just no longer serves the purpose in this ever-changing world of excitement and extraordinary that we live in. And my job is to do something about that. I love that response. And I've learned a little bit about that in my doctorate program. And I found that so fascinating that so much of what we do in education is designed off of that. And we've just made some tweaks along the way. And as you've said, we've tried to do a little bit better. And some people have done some things a lot better in different programs. But yeah, why don't we try to do different things and do them a lot better? And I love this approach that you've taken. And maybe we can do something a lot differently and do it a lot better. Well, I, I kind of gave you the idea on why schools need to change because education doesn't serve the purpose that it was designed for over 100 years ago. But I haven't shared with you yet what that might look like. Are you ready? I'm ready. I think okay. our listeners are too. Okay, then you need to buckle up and so do your listening audience because I'm going to take you on a journey that is going to excite you because in some way, I think we're all invested in our schools. I'm going to start off with this. Every day, and I, I, by the way, I'm at a, at a high school, comprehensive high school, public school in the Mesa Public Schools, 3,500 students and over 300 staff. And I have an office. And from my office, I have this great view of the courtyard. I can see the parking lot. And I watch kids as they approach school each day. And I notice that they check something upon entry when they pass through the gate, the threshold of entering the school. There's something they check. And they don't get it back until the end of the day. And some don't even get it back then. You can't see it, but it's there. And what they check every day at the gate is their agency, their ability to act their ability to identify an unsolved problem and work with others to solve them, their ability to be set free, to think big thoughts, their ability to follow their interests, their passions, and then plug them in the world where they can make a difference. What they experience is contrary to that. And contrary to being an agent in one's own learning journey is being imprisoned by a model of ritual compliance which sadly enough, in far too many places, is what school has become today. I heard a great school leader. Her name is Linda Darling-Hammond, and she's one of the great thinkers in public education of our day. And I was listening to her speak a couple of days ago, and she referred to public education as jail for kids. And I thought, you know, that was sadly enough, I thought a pretty fair description of what it's like in many places. When you live in a world where there's no agency, and you're sitting in rows of desks, and you're staring at the backs of each other's heads as you gaze toward the front of the room where there's a teacher. And in this world that we live in, the idea that teachers are distributors of content, and your job is to download that content as a student, as a passive receiver, and retain it long enough to reproduce it to prove that learning took place. I would have thought, and your audience can't see this, but I'm holding up my cell phone right now. I would have thought when we entered into an age of smartphones where they carry the Library of Congress around in their pockets, the schools would no longer be the distributors of content. We live in this world now where content is at our fingertips, and yet still we take kids down the death march of memorization. So the way to disrupt the model that was born so long ago is to develop a model that's anchored by agency, where kids are doing real-world work, working alongside their teachers, identifying real-world problems that are yet to be solved, and then working alongside of each other to solve them. Where the work that readers and writers and scientists and social scientists do inside of school 
is a mirror image reflection of the work that readers and writers and scientists and social scientists do outside of school. I met with my teachers last week and I said, I want you to ask yourself this question and this will be our greatest metric for success. If what you're teaching inside of your classroom isn't reflected in the world outside of your classroom, why are you teaching it? Get rid of it. I don't care if it's a standard or not. It needs to correlate with the world because kids feel like school is the biggest waste of their time and they have to endure the drudgery of it before they graduate where they could start living and experiencing life. I'm quoting our student body president who made that statement that his eyes welled up with tears and he said, school is not the way it's currently designed. It's not healthy for the mind and it's not healthy for the soul. We're disrupting that on our campus at Mountain View. And Keith, I'm here to say it right now, and, and I know this is being recorded, and I want all of the accountability associated with this. Mountain View High School in Mesa, Arizona, on the quarter of Lindsay and Brown, will be the answer to the question, do all comprehensive high schools in America have to be stuck in the Industrial Revolution? And the answer is an emphatic no. And we're going to do something about it. We're doing it right now, and change can't happen fast enough. There's books on change. John Cotter's change model. We're violating every law on change. And when people say you're going too fast, I say, you know what, you're right. We're going to adjust our accelerator. We're going to, instead of going 120 miles an hour, we're going to do 160 miles an hour because kids deserve better. I'm doing this because my four kids were part of a system where they felt like they were imprisoned. Every day was a replica of the day before, like that movie Groundhog Day. So I could go on and on about it, and I already have, but it looks a lot different. It feels a lot different, and the world is ready for change. And we're going to provide, not for our own vain recognition and glory, but we're going to provide a light on the hill for the world to look at as a blueprint on how to alter their lives and give them more meaningful experiences. Oh, I just love it. It's so refreshing to hear. And I sat in a, a wonderful class on learning how to design online content for classes and we learned the history of online classes and even that history is a lot more recent but even that content talked about correspondence courses and different things and all the academic literature was so outdated and that was our big gripe with the professor and he said i know we can't keep up quick enough with the change of all the stuff that's coming out and he said that we're on the cusp of a educational revolution and we need to change faster. But so many people are afraid of that change. And so many people are hesitant to buy into what's needed to adapt to the resources available and to the needs. And so I ask, have you met any resistance as you've led out in this revolution of change for your students? Because I know this change is needed. And I know many people feel this change is needed, but change is a scary thing for a lot of people. And so as you lead out in this much needed change for our educational system, and even at higher levels of education, many people realize that we need to do differently. We need to do better. We need to adapt to the technological advantages we have in this era. But how do we do that? And how do we meet this resistance? How do we bring people into the fold? How do we meet this resistance in a way that encourages people to come along with us? Boy, that is such a great question, Keith. And I'm going to send you a video. There's a professional filmmaker that wanted to capture this shift that we're leading. And I, I would say that it's a civil rights movement, that what we're doing, there needs to be a revolution. And 
I think it's one of the more important civil rights movements of the modern era is to revolutionize school to give kids more of, a, of an experience that they deserve in this, this world that we live in. They shouldn't have to endure the drudgery of school. But is there opposition? Oh my goodness, yes. And the reason I'm built for this is the opposition puts fire in my belly. Instead of beating me down like it does some, it energizes me. And I look at the opposition as another metric that we're doing something that matters, something that's worth taking notice of. But let me tell you, the ones that do not oppose this, parents do not oppose this, students do not oppose this. And on this video that I'm going to send you, I've been doing this for over 15 years, and I have 15 years of data. And I'm going to take you through this. And if you're in the listening audience, I want you to play along with me. But Keith, you have kids, correct? Yes. How old are they? Is it okay if I ask you that? Yeah, absolutely. 17 and 24, uh, somewhere in that range, the oldest one. Okay. Um, man, you're going to be on the cusp of having grand grandbabies. Uh, actually, we just visited our first grandbaby. So, oh, yeah. What is the grandbaby's name? Uh, Mary Renee. Mary Renee, I can't wait to meet her. Hopefully, I will someday. How old is she? She's just turned four months. We were out there for the four-month birthday. Okay, I'm going to take you through a little exercise, Keith. Think of Mary Renee. And for those of you that are in the listening audience, I want you to think of, you might have seven kids, but for the purpose of this exercise, I want you to think of just one. I want you to personalize it to just one. And there's a reason why I want you to personalize it to just one. And for you, Keith, think of Mary Renee and think of the dispositions that you would like this sweet little grandbaby of yours that changed your life. Now, all of a sudden, you, you know, Keith, because you're a member of the club like me, that the grandparents club is not a scam. It's not a gush competition to who, see who can brag the most about their kids. I thought the whole thing had to be just a bragging contest to see who could brag the most about their kids. It was a scam. And I was on to all the grandparents until Vera was born. And so I know you love this little baby like no other. But think of the dispositions, the behaviors, the attitudes, the character traits, the virtues, the qualities that you would like for Mary Renee to develop in life. And I normally give 90 seconds, but for the purpose of this activity, I'm going to give you just 30 seconds and think about those character traits, those dispositions that you want this sweet little baby, Mary Renee, to develop in life. And if you're in the listening audience, I want you to think along too and see how many we can come up with. So go ahead and speak into the silence and rattle them off just as fast as you can. I can script real, real quickly. Go ahead, Keith. What would you like Mary Renee to develop in life? Honesty, loyalty, critical thinking, happiness, virtue, peace, joy, friendship. One more. Shot at the buzzer. Five, four, um, three, two, one. Good if it goes. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Okay. So this is what you came up with. And if you're in the listening audience, I'm trusting that you played along. Honesty, loyalty, critical thinking, happiness, virtue, peace, joy, friendship, faithfulness. I've been doing this for 15 years. Sometimes I ask as many as 30 sometimes as many as 60 parents and other educators, and their list is very much like yours. And I'm looking at one right now. Here's some of the other dispositions that people come up with, the parents, when they're thinking about one of their kids, to be curious, to be a hard worker, to be competitive, confident, 
to be selfless, to be service-minded. You would appreciate that one because we're talking about servant leadership. To be an innovator, to be thoughtful, to stand up for others, to be a protector, to discern truth from mistruth, to be confident, empowered, resilient, kind, compassionate. But there's one virtue that you named that in 15 years of doing this, where I've done this with thousands and thousands of people, there's one virtue that's present every single time. And you're the first one in 15 years. I want you to know you made history today, Keith. It's the first time a dad has offered it. It's always been from a mom, joy and happiness. We want our kids to experience joy above all and happiness. But the problem is when they get into school, a lot of times that's crushed right out of them. And the reason that parents are so ready for change. In this video, I'm gonna show you one parent says, we are so ready, we're thirsting for change. Our kids need to know that school's not the biggest waste of their time, is most of them are enduring the drudgery. They're not experiencing joy because they're not doing work that has purpose and meaning and value to them. It doesn't have relevance to the world outside of school. And when kids are doing real world work that has a passion, they're willing to work hard. They'll even do it outside of school. They get driven, they get motivated but they experience joy where there's agency. And that's what I'm excited about is kids are going to experience, you also refer to it as happiness. They'll experience happiness and joy. Kids are excited about it because they see a shift. Right now, the shift is on at the school that I lead. And we're not gonna have to wait a terribly long time. We're already seeing, this morning, I was at Boeing that manufactures the Apache attack helicopters. And we had 15 kids and their teachers that were going on a tour to see what it's like. They were talking to engineers. The parents in the community that are expert in their field of service are going to be adjunct faculty at our school. Community partners like Boeing. I was talking to the chief engineer that's over 800 engineers at Boeing. He's been there for 36 years. He said, you have me as adjunct faculty. The mayor of the 38th largest city in America, Mesa, name is John Giles. He said, I'll come in and work with your future political scientists and lawyers because he's a lawyer by trade on Tuesdays. So you empower an entire community. And so then I'm not only, I'm the one I know that is looked at upon as the leader in this community, but it's shared leadership. And for the purpose of your viewing audience that's interested in servant leadership, we're all leaders in some capacity of elevating the lives of kids. And I know my role is very important. But I never ask anybody else to do something that I'm not willing to do or something that I haven't already done. And there's a, a news piece. It was a national news piece by ABC. I think Chris might have sent it to you. And they referred to me as the mastermind behind this learning mega model. And it was like nails on the chalkboard for me. Because while my role is very important, I'm not the only one trying to solve this unsolved problem. There's a whole community that has taken it on. And I'm part of that. And for them to refer to me as the mastermind, I felt was complete opposition of everything I'm trying to build here because we're working on it together, trying to solve this unsolved problem. It's the work, Keith, of inquiry. It's the opposite of a transmission-based model with a teacher at the front of the room with kids sit in rows of desks with a number two pencil and a worksheet. The work of inquiry is when you're working together. Now, you're going to love this, and so is your viewing audience. I teach not this part, but I teach a, a Sunday school class in my church, same one that you belong to. And at least I used to until I received a different service opportunity that kept me a lot busier. But I was sharing with the group as we were studying the Old Testament, 
that the smartest one in the room is not John Merrill. John Merrill speaks seven languages. He translates uh, Hebrew into English, and he's always giving us this incredible insight into making sense out of the scriptures. But I said, the smartest one in the room is not Brother Merrill. It's not John Merrill. And everyone looked at me like, no, it's always John Merrill. It doesn't matter who's in the room. He's always going to be the smartest one in the room. (laughs) But the smartest one in the room, are you ready for this? The smartest one in the room is always the room. It's our collective way of seeing and knowing. It's different interpretations of how you've made sense out of different scriptural passages. It's how the experiences that you have possessed, how have you come to make sense out of this particular passage or parable, you know, in the scriptures. And when we share those together, we create a new poem that's never existed before. And we arrive at understandings that we would have never arrived at on our own. Well, the same is true in working in public school. When you empower others to share their insights and interpretations, you find ways of seeing and knowing that you would have never arrived at on your own. And you're setting kids free to think big thoughts. And the teacher is one of many learners in the classroom. And they rotate in and out of the role of teacher and learner. Such a profound, beautiful thought. And you know, I will share that ABC article that Chris sent over to me. And I'll share a couple of insights that I gained from it because I gathered just from a little bit of that I've learned about you that that would be a nails on the chalkboard to you. But as those of you that are listening, if you click on that video, there's some things that are just so insightful if you really watch that video with with true listening eyes. If you look in the background, you'll see as you look in that classroom that they show in that video, you'll see some of the prompts that on the board, things that of talking about communication, of talking about collaboration, of of things that bring that classroom together. You know, Mike, he talked about bringing the community in there to be part of that leading. And one of my mentors, Dr. Josh Armstrong from Gonzaga, who's been a previous guest of this podcast, he talked about servant leadership being the heart where he uses adaptive leadership of being kind of the arms or the action of leadership. And Mike kind of modeled that a little bit too. He adapts to the different people of his community. In that video, he shows three different teachers in this team teaching model adapting to each other and adapting to the needs of the classroom and the students adapting in their skill sets to this model of the smartest person in the room being the room and adapting to each other. And as you look at this video, one of the things that I got out of this video is that although they they labeled Mike the mastermind, if you're really paying attention, you saw that there was equal footing from all the participants in that environment. And, oh. I, and I got that from looking at it a little bit. And so they might've used labels as newscasters do or labels as newscasters do. But well, one of the things I took away from it was that each of those teachers and students was truly empowered in that environment. And I think that just crossing over into our organizations, that's such a powerful concept to think about is how do we, you know, what do we put in our environments? What's on the boards that reemphasize how we communicate, what reemphasizes how we collaborate and how we make that room pull out our strengths to make it so that room invites it, all of us to participate in a way that makes the room create it so that we truly make it it's the smartest aspect of all of us because it brings us all together and pulls out all of our unique experiences because that's powerful. Well, you have made my heavy heart happy and I'm hoping that others recognize that 
the mastermind behind this is the collective inquiry that hundreds or even thousands of people are embarking upon. We have a mission. When I arrived at Mountain View, we didn't have a mission and it took us half the year to develop one. But our mission is empowering learners to strive for excellence, connect with community, and carve pathways for the future. And, you know, I could talk for 18 days on what it means to be an empowered learner. Your listening audience probably feels like I have been talking for 18 days on it. But being an empowered learner is at the heart of what we're developing. But you were mentioning what the classroom looks like. One of the things, and I've shared this many times, even the last few days, when we were visiting schools in California, I took uh, a team of about 15 of my teachers and some of our admin to go look at schools in California that are striving to do better things. And I was telling them that the classrooms can be like crime scene investigations. Even if nobody's in the room, if there's no teacher and the students aren't there, you walk in, you can see what is valued by what's on the wall, what's not on the wall. You can see much about how the teacher feels that we learn by how the furniture is arranged. There's so much that you can detect without even seeing a teacher or another kid or a human being in the room just by looking at the room. And the room tells a story of what's valued, of what's not valued. And when kids are there, I can. there's an old adage that it doesn't take five seconds to tell if it's Liberace playing the piano or the neighborhood kid practicing next door. It takes me all of about two seconds when I walk into a classroom to see if it's the same old thing or if kids are set free to think big thoughts and they're operating under conditions of agency. And it's quite powerful. You can feel it like you can. Like today, it's an atypical day in the Valley of the Sun here in the Phoenix area in Mesa. It's very cold. It's raining. The wind is blowing. It's as visible as when you walk outside. And if it's a warm, sunny day or if it's an Arctic wind that's blowing you in the face, it's that way when you walk into classrooms and when you walk into schools, they have a heartbeat, a social tone, a culture. And developing that culture is where the fruit resides. And you do that through elevated learning experiences with what happens inside the building. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that creating that space, that environment of psychological safety is so powerful because if those students don't feel that it's a space where they can think big thoughts, they're not going to. They're not going to participate. They're not going to open their minds. They're not going to open their mouths. They're not going to open their hearts to that participation. And we see that in the typical classroom, right? We see them shut down and shut off. And that's why we think that learning is not occurring. That's why we think education's broken is because the students are turning off. You know, you reference psychological safety for the students. And I think you just uncovered something that is paramount to what we're doing. I'm so glad that you hit on it before the program came to an end. Whether it's psychological safety or agency or anything, anything that you're trying to develop, a culture, we call it a curriculum of caring, it begins with the adults on the campus. And it can't spiral into classrooms if the adults on campus don't have that curriculum of caring with each other. Agency can't spiral into classrooms to impact the lives of kids if the adults on the campus don't have it. And the psychological safety is so important, not only for kids, but for teachers. And I've shared with them many times, because I've only been here for a year and a half. This change is happening, and it's happening fast, and people are taking notice, as you can see, with this national news program. But the psychological safety, where teachers know, I've told them, when I come in to visit your classroom, try something new. Go for it. You've got a, a layer of protection with me. I don't care if it fails miserably. 
and the kids are hanging from the light fixtures and someone throws a chair across the room, if no one gets hurt, it's okay to have miscues in this. It's going to be messy, but oh, those joyous outcomes that result from it. And I tell them, look, we'll celebrate the little approximations along the way. Here's another key part of leadership. Celebrate the approximations as you take little incremental steps toward your goal of becoming. Believing others into being, I think, is a principle of service leadership. And by that, I mean, you see them for whom they can become. And you start believing them into that. And just like Edison said, he came up with 2,000 ways not to invent a light bulb before he found the one that worked. Teachers are going to find 2,000 ways not to teach through inquiry until all of a sudden they see learning take flight and the lives of kids take flight and theirs right alongside them. And having those principles of psychological safety and having conditions of agency where learning takes place. So conditions of joy are manifested all over a school culture in and outside of school. And the idea too, that learning occurs in a box, in a little box inside of a bigger box, we're changing all of that. Kids are experiencing seat time flexibility where they're already doing internships where they're apprenticing themselves to doctors, to empire machinery, where they're learning to be diesel mechanics. We're going to have interns at Boeing so they can work alongside engineers that are manufacturing the Apache helicopters. Completely different version of school. And it's going to be messy. There are going to be miscues along the way. And absolutely, we have to have conditions of psychological safety and trust. So we know that our miscues is a step of approximation. and We'll celebrate those along the way as we're patient with ourselves and with our students, we're all learners and we're all trying to strive, you know, to figure it out together. Part of leadership. Oh, wonderful. I, I love it. And one of the things that I saw when I was watching that video, which I love because I just, you know, I spent recently six months in Mexico and I just grew a great respect and profound love for our partners to the South, our our Mexican counterparts down there as I worked with the government down there and I gained great respect for them and for the way they do things. And I learned very quickly that just because they do things differently doesn't mean that they do things wrong or or that we do things right. It's that we sometimes we do things differently and there can be a lot to be learned. And I know that you've studied culture bound theory as part of your doctorate. And and I just love the thoughts about this. And so can you Talk to our audience a little bit about what culture bound theory is and then relate it to your work there at the school and then even to servant leadership. Sure, Keith. A guy named James Bradley coined the term years ago. And he, his assertion is that we're all culture bound to some degree, meaning we're imprisoned by our own biases and that we don't even know it most of the time. That we've been duped into thinking that our reality is the reality. And there are not alternative ways of seeing and knowing the world around us. And he suggests that if we don't do things to intentionally disrupt our culture-bound way of existing and seeing and knowing, that we're imprisoned by our own biases. and We don't even know it. So when I came across this theory, I was at an elementary school and we were years into the development of it. And I was horrified at the very thought that while we were doing great things, and I saw kids just thriving and experiencing joy and thinking critically beyond what you'd see at, at any other school uh, that I had come to know, that we had our own biases and that we were imprisoned by them. And my doctoral work was to uncover the school through the eyes of parents to get a different view of the school. And so I created focus groups where I asked questions. By the way, when I came to the current school that I'm at now, Mountain View High School, 
I did the same thing. This time it wasn't part of a doctoral study. It was part of the study of how am I going to work alongside this community to transform high school in America. I spent 27 nights after I was named principal before I started. And I went into the homes of parents ranging anywhere from 20 to 30 parents. And I had a another parent that was taking copious notes that transcribed them electronically. And I said, tell me about my, my new home. What do I need to know? All topics are in play. Go. And boy, you wouldn't believe some of the things that I heard, but it was their reality, their perceived realities of a place called school, in this case, Mountain View. And I saw what was important to them. I heard about the concerns that they had, and I learned an awful lot. And in doing so, and I didn't have a lot of biases coming into the school because every single kid at Mountain View, and there's 3,500 of them, they all knew about more about high school than I did because they were in school and I hadn't been to one since I graduated from Maryville a long, long time ago, my high school. And so the greatest liability that I brought was that I was a career elementary school educator, but the greatest asset that I brought was that I was a career elementary school educator because I questioned everything. I'm going to share something with you, and I hope this is okay. And I love this poem. And it was crafted well over 100 years ago before the advent of the uh, automobile, and it's called The Calf Path. And it was written by Sam Foss. And I'm going to take just a moment to share this with you. But so often we fall into the trap and it relates to culture bound theory where we're imprisoned by our own way of doing things. And we do things the same old way and we never question why. Sometimes the church that you and I both belong to falls into that trap. We call it the tradition of our fathers. And sometimes we don't question it. It's just the way we've always done things. But listen to this. One day through the primeval wood, a calf walked home, as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then, 300 years have fled, and I infer the calf is dead. But still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my moral tale. The trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way. And then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail or vale and steep, and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellwethers always do. And from that day or hill and glade through those old woods, a path was made. And many men wound in and out and dodged and turned and bent about and uttered words of righteous wrath because twas such a crooked path. But still they followed, do not laugh, the first migrations of that calf. And through this winding wood they stalked because that calf wobbled when he walked. The forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many a poor horse with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles to get just one. And thus, a century and a half, they trod the footsteps of that calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street. And this, before men were aware, a city's crowded thoroughfare. And soon the central street was this, of a renowned metropolis. And men two centuries and a half trod in the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand rout followed the zigzag calf about. And o'er his crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one calf nearly three centuries dead. They followed still his crooked way and lost 100 years a day. For thus, such reverence is lent to well-established precedent. 
A moral lesson this might teach where I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go up blind along the paths of the mind and walk away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path a sacred groove along which all their lives they move. But oh, how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw the first primeval calf. Ah, many things that this tale might teach, but I am not ordained to preach. Let us not go down the calf path. Let us create a path and go where no one's gone before. I love taking on challenges, Keith. There's people laugh in my office that I'm sitting in right now because there's a quote and I'm looking over at it. I had it professionally published and framed and it says, the quality of our life is only equal to the degree of challenges we're willing to take on. And then underneath it is my name, Michael Oliver. People say, why would you put your own quote on the wall? I said, it just happens to be my favorite quote. I love it. <laughs> it's fun taking on impossible challenges. What we're seeking to do is impossible until we do it. I love doing impossible things. And here's something that I believe. I don't impose this on anybody. But whenever I go to take on an impossible trek or challenge, this is what I say. Right before I'm speaking, if I'm a little nervous because I know the stakes are high, or right before I'm about to try something where I think this really matters in my life, I say a quiet little prayer. And then I quote the last stanza of another little-known poem called The Man Who Thinks He Can. The last stanza is this. The race doesn't always go to the stronger or faster man. But sooner or later, the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. And I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. I believe that this is an inspired work. Every day when I say my prayers, I don't impose this on anybody, but I'm not bashful to say that I'm a faithful person. I get down on my knees because I know that this work matters to the Lord. Bringing agency into the heart of kids in a community. My allergies are starting to flare up a little bit. I just pray that the Lord will illuminate a path for me to follow and that I will follow it because I feel like when you're trying to better the lives of kids that he loves them more than we do in a way that's incomprehensible. Even little Mary Renee, your sweet little grandbaby, Keith, you and I both know he loves her more than you do. I don't know how it's possible. I just know that it's a perfect love and he can use people like us. I noticed over your shoulder, there's a book by Spencer W. Kimball one of my favorite quotes is from him, that the Lord loves and knows each one of us, but when he meets our needs, it's usually through each other. Servant leadership is trying to make the world a better place and realizing that when we're on his errand, we're entitled to his strength from on high. I found that to be true. Nothing's impossible, even redesigning the great comprehensive, great American high school program culture in America. It's fun to do impossible things. Wonderful, wonderful thoughts. And so inspiring. I love the goal. I love the focus on doing impossible things. And I love the appetite to learn about other people's cultures and to learn to recognize that we have these cultural and biased blind spots. And so that's my challenge for each of you listening today is to think about the world that you live in and what are your blind spots? What are the things that are keeping you from seeing that the room is the smartest thing? in your environment. not there. There's one person that's smartest in your work team or your work environment, but the collection of the people on your team are the smartest. So what is the bias? What is the cultural thing that's holding you back from seeing that every 
person on your team creates that as the smartest thing on your team. Because there's something, there's some bias that you're exposed to. And if you think that you don't have a bias, I invite you to go back and look at the show notes from Chris Marin's episode and go take the Harvard implicit bias test because we all have some bias of some sort. And so think about that. That's my invitation for you this episode to think about it. And also think about those impossible tasks that you're not taking on that will raise you up to greatness just as Mike's talking about and how he invites those on his team to take on these goals. And just think about these high school students and the vision they're being filled with right now, being asked to act for themselves, being put in these environments where they're getting to choose and act and being put around people that are empowering them in ways that that they have never been empowered before and that you and I probably were never empowered in our own environments and what a beautiful thing it is. And then think about how we can do that to others as servant leaders in all of our environments, because that's the gift and power of servant leadership. Just as Mike said, that we can build others up and that we can be on his errand to do that for other people. Well, thanks, Mike. It's been wonderful having you on. Any final thoughts as we wrap up today? No, just thank you, Keith. You know, every time I share my beliefs, I feel like they're they're strengthened and fortified. And I appreciate you giving me the space to do that. And hope in some small way, somebody out there in your viewing audience might have been able to have some small takeaway in their own lives and their own journey. It's my hope and prayer. Well, thanks, Mike. I've been inspired. It's just such wonderful work you're doing there in Arizona as I've studied education and learning theories and just the power of creating a learning environment, many people have asked me, why would you take on this education? You don't have a background in education, but I do have a desire to create amazing learning environments. And so I've been inspired by you and what you're doing. And it gives me so much to think about. And I hope that all you listening have been given so much to think about, about how we can do more in our communities to raise up the stakes of our education all around us. And so thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified discussions on servant leadership. And please like and share this episode because we can change education in our country if we help others to see the light and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Keith.